Hi, everybody. This is Randy Beamer of News for San Antonio. You're listening to San Antonio's Voice, the podcast. We talk with all kinds of people about all kinds of things related to this area. And today, not only a fascinating interview, but about a fascinating uh, book title, Greedy Bastards, Cheryl Scully, former city manager, and Greedy Bastards. With that, we go to our Simon editor, Sal Del Cid, <laughs> joining us today. Sal? Thank you, Randy. Yeah, I, so if you ever wonder why San Antonio functions the way it does, or why things get run a certain way, well, then this is the podcast for you. You guys talked about that in detail. And, of course, you spoke about her famous battles with the fire department and police department unions. Uh, but she also revealed a couple stories that maybe people aren't familiar with, Randy. She told you who was the famous San Antonio resident who picked up the phone to recruit her after she said no to the job the first time. And she also told you what stunned her a little bit her first day in the office when staff told her something that she should do. And that kind of took her back for a moment. Fire 300 people it was, and it was over the weirdest of issues. And so not only is the word greedy bastards in there, but porn was involved. Um, some surprises in there, very interesting. And also it describes how she worked with a series of mayors from Phil Hardberger to Julian Castro, Ivy Taylor, uh, Ron Nuremberg, and over the course of those years, one of the things that she worked on so hard was she was the front person on that uh, fire and police union contract and wasn't real happy about it, and it took a toll on her, and she talked about that and explains how Greedy Bastards uh, relates to that. Uh, but everything from pre-K for SA to the recession in San Antonio, fascinating conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Rate it high at the end. Subscribe. This is San Antonio's Voice, the podcast with Cheryl Scully on Greedy Bastards. All right. Thank you very much for doing this. This is going to be fun. Be loud. Be obnoxious. Don't be shy. I tell people <laughs> uh, who are politicians. Uh, first of all... I'm not a politician. I know, but that, that's why I'm saying I should, I should get you to be loud and obnoxious. Greedy Bastards, very understated title. <laughs> uh, did your publisher like it or say... Uh... Oh, my publisher loves the title. Um, it, uh, I can't take credit for the title of the book. Uh, it was inspired by the police union president back in 2014 uh, when we began the conversation about remodeling the public safety contracts for both police and fire unions. Uh, there was a video of him talking about my team and I and how we were trying to portray them as greedy bastards, but they weren't. And uh, as soon as I saw the video, I thought, gosh, if I ever write a book, he just gave me the title to the book. So we joked about that over the years. I didn't think it would take six years to get to conclusion with both unions, uh, but it did. We just received the fire union arbitration in February of this year. Uh, but uh, it was a tough battle changing the 25-year-old contracts that were approved back in 1988. Uh, it was a tough, it was a tough battle, and I think the title reflects uh, how difficult it was. And this was most of the book, right? But it's not the only part. Yeah, the the beginning of the book was about uh, my recruitment to San Antonio. You'll recall, Randy, that I turned down the job. Uh, yes. The first time it was offered. And then and, Phil Hardberger wanted you. Yes. Bad. And then I hadn't met Phil Hardberger. In fact, 
uh, when I was being interviewed in the spring of 2005, uh, I asked to meet all the mayoral candidates because I knew there was an election in May and a runoff in June if necessary. And they said, don't worry about him. He's not going to win. The uh, election is really between two sitting council members, Julian Castro and Carol Schubert. So I had met both of them. Um, I turned down the job at that point. Uh, and then, um, well, a couple of reasons. One, uh, they had wanted uh, tremendous change. They were looking for improvement in the city organization, city government. Uh, and they said uh, things like, fire everybody and start over. And I said, well, if you are really serious about that, uh, then I, I would hope that the council would be unanimous in wanting that kind of change and that there's strong support for that kind of change. Uh, and uh, they had offered me a lot of money to attract me to come to San Antonio, so I knew they were serious about wanting that kind of change. But uh, my salary during that election process that spring uh, became controversial. A couple of council members fell off. Uh, the support wagon, although they said we want you to come, but you know we aren't supportive of of that salary, and I I withdrew from the process and said no, thank you. So I went back to doing my work this uh, is in, in Phoenix. Phoenix mm -hmm. Yes, as uh, the number two person there, I was the assistant city manager there, and um, then I got a call first from Red McCombs, who I really? didn't I didn't recognize. Uh, who he was, I should have. My daughter at that point was a sophomore at the University of Texas. When she graduated from high school in Phoenix, she chose to come to the University of Texas. And uh, we actually toured the Macomb School of Business, uh, but it didn't click. Uh, I didn't, uh, didn't so you, register. You got a call from Red, and what did he say? And did you say, well, who well are you exactly? um, he had called a couple of times. Um, I had seen phone messages, and I hadn't called back. and. Then his assistant uh, uh, emailed me and said, Red really wants to talk with you. And I thought, gosh, they, they've called or now contacted me three times. Let me just take care of this. Let me call this man back and uh, tell him, no, thank you. I'm busy and I've decided to stay in Phoenix. Uh, so I called and I was polite. Uh, but he said, Cheryl, in his usual southern Texas Cheryl. drawl, uh, we have a new mayor, and we want you to come to San Antonio as city manager. And I thanked him and quickly got off the phone to go on to my next meeting. And, uh, and then a week or so later, I got a call from Phil Hardberger, who I'd never met or spoken with. Um, I remember the call distinctly because it was during the playoffs, and we all know that the Spurs won that year. And we happened to be watching because we had lived, and my husband's from Michigan, and Detroit was playing the Spurs that year in the finals. And so we were watching the finals, and here I get a call from the new mayor. And I asked him, I said, uh, aren't you watching? Aren't you watching the game? Even we're watching the game. <laughs> and uh, he said, no, nope, want to talk with you, and I'll watch the game in the fourth quarter. And from there, you came even earlier than you thought you were going to. I Hurricane did. Katrina. I did. He and I, I told him at first that I would help him find a city manager. I had served on the International City Management Association Board of Directors and was networked in the system. I had been president 
of the Michigan Association and the Arizona Association had been president there, so I knew a lot of city managers uh, across the country. And uh, he convinced me that it would be me. And so uh, about a week before Hurricane Katrina uh, hit the coast uh, and New Orleans was devastated, uh, I was appointed city manager. And I wasn't supposed to begin until the 1st of November, but um, I did come in and help over Labor Day weekend, uh, he and the council members and the community on the recovery effort. How much did you know about San Antonio before you got here? Well, I had done some research. Um, I knew the city managers, the previous city managers. Um, I had some connections uh, with a couple of people uh, here that I spoke with. So I did some research, and uh, it was it was a mixed review, really. What did um, you What did you find out that needed to be changed? Because you changed a lot. We did, and I say we because it was a huge team effort with the support and guidance of the mayors and council members. Uh, here in San Antonio over the 14 years. Um, what I found um, was an organization that needed a lot of improvement. Um, about a third of the positions were vacant or had interim directors. Um, the financial system was basically non-existent. Um, the bond programs were very small and they needed huge infrastructure improvements in the community. Um, I know you used to be a runner. Um, me too, as a marathon runner. I'd go out in different parts of the city and run, and it was so obvious that sidewalks and streets and more park system and linear creeks so that people didn't have to run on the streets but could be in a natural environment like this beautiful river walk. Uh, and so there were many things that needed to be done. But I, I met with as many people as I could in those early months in that first year uh, to talk with people from all walks of life, uh, to get their ideas on the future of San Antonio, what they wanted to see from their city government, and then identified those common threads and was able to put a plan together uh, with the support of the city council on what we would tackle first. What was it like when you first came here? Um, before we got into, before you got into the, the union battle, which you had some political capital up to that time. But at the beginning, when you came here, I don't think people realize there's that many departments that you have under your direction mm -hmm. and what you wound up changing. Yeah, um, it really was a, a transformation for the organization in a very positive way. Um, I did identify people from within the organization who I thought were very competent, uh, were hardworking, uh, and I moved them into different positions. I'm a big Jim Collins fan, good to great, great by choice, and getting people in the right seats uh, to be able to be most productive uh, based on their skill set and interest and passion uh, for the work is important, and people like uh, Maria Villa Gomez and Lori Houston and Eric Walsh, my successor, um, promoting them, Rod Sanchez and Ben Gorzell, um, just a whole host of people who uh, could do more for the organization. At the same time, while I was evaluating talent, I was recruiting across the country. And so one of my first hires, as you know, was Police Chief Bill McManus. A year later, it was Fire Chief Charles Hood, uh, David McCary for our Solid Waste Department. Uh, so it's, it's good to mix it up. 
in my mind in professional management. Um, there, you want new ideas and creativity. You need some institutional knowledge of those from the community and from the organization. Uh, but in many cases, it's uh, the same kinds of problems elsewhere, but different perspectives on on how to change and, and make those kinds of improvements. So uh, we did a lot of hiring and uh, changes in, in personnel in those, in those early years. Was that tough because you came in and did let go a lot of people? Uh, it was tough. However, um, I told people that I wanted them to be a part of the team, but here was the direction. And uh, if they couldn't uh, subscribe to that, then they needed to move on. And one of the things you had to deal with, and you mentioned in the book, is what some people, a lot of people, were doing online. Might not expect that in a book, maybe if it's greedy bastards, but what, what was that about <laughs> that you had to lay down the law? Yeah, so um, I was not even officially on the job yet, but I was, after Hurricane Katrina, it was obvious to me I needed to be coming in uh, Every other week, I was looking for housing. Um, I wanted to meet people, and uh, Mayor Hardberger and I put a list together of who was important for me to meet ahead. And each weekend that I came in to take care of business and also meet with the staff to get some hiring going and recruitments going for positions, um, I'd try to take a Saturday afternoon and, and meet the police union president or the neighborhood leader in an area of the city that needed improvement, um, just to meet them in a casual setting, get to know them. And uh, I, I did move my things here uh, to my my new home a week before I was officially on the job, thinking I could get myself organized and then just hit the deck running that early November date. I went into the office. It's hard to keep me out of the office. Uh, that Monday morning that I arrived and I wasn't on the job yet, and I met with the staff and they said, um, we've got a problem. And I said, well, tell me about it. Let's talk it through. And they said, we're recommending that you fire 300 of our city staff because they've been uh, using their city computers and looking at pornography. 300? 300 staff. Uh, so I ask about a technology policy, password protection, um, none of which existed. And uh, um, I ask them how they found out that. Yeah, how did you identify that many and not well, do anything? Well, they said that they had done a sting back in July. And so I asked, what have you been doing since July? And they said, waiting for you. Um, so uh, <clears throat> knowing that we couldn't prove that they were actually on and if they appealed their terminations, I mean, police and fire have an arbitration process. The civilians have civil service. Uh, without password protection, basically the computers were open to anyone. Um, I did ask the uh, human resources director at the time to meet with the top 20 worst offenders and discuss with them that if this ever happened again, they would be fired immediately. So they knew how much time they were doing this? How much time they were? They did, and it was pretty awful. And, and then you worry about where was the supervision? Where was the productivity analysis? Did someone not notice that you have employees on computers looking at pornography for hours on end, um, how, how was that? So it was bigger than just even those 300, but what I did do immediately was uh, 
work with the staff. We developed a technology policy, implemented that. We did training throughout the organization and put screens on the computers and password protection, and the problem has been taken but care of. But since that came up right away, did you wonder why, you know, did you ever wonder, hmm, this is going to be a little weirder than I thought? Well, I, um, I knew that there were basics that needed to be addressed right away. Um, ethics training was another area of concern. In fact, um, I noticed when I was going out and about and meeting with all the employees, there were these posters set up, fraud, waste, and abuse, call this number. And um, I said, whose, whose posters are those? Oh, that's our Office of Municipal Integrity. If anyone sees something wrong, they need to call. And I said, tell me about the training. What kind of training does the city do? Oh, well, we do training, and it's voluntary. I said, did it occur to anyone that people who choose to go to the training might not be the people who need it most? And, and I strongly believe in more than 40 years in city management that if employees know the rules of engagement, if you're fair and just in discipline process, uh, they're going to do, a majority of them, a high majority, 98% are going to do the right thing. Um, so we developed a strong ethics policy, developed a video to give examples of what was right, what was wrong. That first year I had, I think, 360 complaints about integrity that came to my office and the Municipal Integrity Office to investigate uh, and by the time I left, um, we had it down to 15. Hmm. Uh, now, people might wonder, uh, well, first, they probably forget who was in office then. You may forget who was in office in all the city council positions then because you worked with so many. But it was Phil Hardberger. And what were your first big directives? Um, also, people don't remember the back in the day there were some city council members that went to is it went to prison while you yeah, were there? Yeah that was no no that was before my time that was another reason that I was thinking twice about whether or not I wanted to come to San Antonio. I didn't want to be associated with an organization that had council members that had been you know um, indicted convicted of bribery and wrongdoing. Um, I you know, where, where that happens at the top, where the leadership is like that, you can expect that there's some of that in the organization. And I did find that uh, in the development services department, where building permits and inspections are handled. And um, I uh, removed the director and uh, appointed Rod Sanchez, who was the assistant director, to take over that area. We worked hard to improve uh, the operation, that is, uh, to improve our cycle time, how long it took to get a permit, the quality of inspections, and the overall customer service attitudes of employees. Not just to say no. In government work, it's easy to say no. Can't get in trouble. No, can't do that. But it takes a different approach and a different individual to say, not this, but how about these two alternatives? Would you consider uh, undertaking your project doing it in this way? And so we did a tremendous amount of training. And through Rod's leadership in that department, it became certified as one of the top 
uh, departments in the state and the country. And now from there, you talked about infrastructure and Phil Hardberger was about infrastructure. Was that the first big thing you worked on, a big bond issue? Yeah, so in January of 2006, I'd only been on the job a couple of months, had already removed quite a few staff and uh, was busy recruiting uh, a new police chief. Uh, and they asked me to develop a big bond program. They knew from my experience in Phoenix that I had worked on big bond programs, uh, nearly three trillion, uh, uh, I'm sorry, three billion dollars of bond improvements just in the general obligation program at the city, plus the airport and, and other water, wastewater funds. Uh, so they wanted, uh, some council members said, we want a billion dollar program, and I I said, well, let's study this first because the largest bond program they had done was $140 million. And then they divided by 10, meaning everybody received about $10 million to work with. And that's not to say $10 million isn't a lot of money. It is. But when you think about how expensive it is to undertake major street improvements, uh, it's... It's expensive. It's tiny compared to what they needed. Right. And, I mean, think about the uh, senior center in District 10. That was a $10 million project. So back in the day, that meant only that one project could get done for that period of time. So the first thing I did with my new finance director, uh, Ben Gorzell, uh, was to study the financials. What was our capability without a tax increase? I knew as the new city manager I was not going to recommend increasing property taxes. In fact, I did not my entire tenure. I recommended and the council approved lowering the tax rate four times. Uh, but we had, we had capacity to do that. Uh, and uh, so we looked at it financially. And then I met with uh, bankers and CFOs from the private sector to say, here's what we've analyzed. Shoot holes in this. Tell me what uh, you think might be wrong with this analysis. And we had a low, medium, and high projection as to what we could do. Uh, we settled on the medium range, and I recommended a $550 million bond program. Uh, but I also knew that to have a big bond program, you also have to have the organizational structure in place to be able to deliver those projects on time and within budget. Uh, so I reorganized the Public Works Department. I recruited a new city engineer to be in charge of capital construction. I wanted people waking up every morning saying, I'm designing and building. We're building. I'm not going to get pulled aside to work on this traffic issue or this pothole or this congestion in this area of the community. I'm focused on construction. So we divided the work, not by adding staff. In fact, I reduced staff, but had staff at a higher uh, skill level to undertake the work. Was that after the bond issue passed? Did you have to deal with getting it passed? I believe Phil Hardberger took the lead on He did, on that. he did, and we were both out in the community speaking on the issue. He wanted me to talk about my experience managing uh, big bond programs. Uh, most importantly, we also involved the community. Uh, we had citizen committees of uh, a total of 120 people on four committees that debated our staff recommendations and decided uh, what was best. We eliminated the divide by 10 and instead uh, adopted a concept of rough proportionality. That is, we wanted all areas of the community to receive some level of improvements. In some areas, streets were more important for improvement. In other areas, drainage and flooding were bigger problems. 
um, other areas didn't have enough park acreage, uh, and so we were roughly proportional. Uh, so it didn't have to be exactly 10 council districts, each one right. exactly the same. That's right. And uh, we coupled that with a maintenance program. So in some cases, some areas of the city really just wanted the equipment in their park replaced, or they wanted increased maintenance happening. And so we coupled that bond program with an extensive street maintenance and parks maintenance program so that they could see the kinds of improvements that were needed. Um, I attended all those meetings with the residents, and I remember one resident saying to me, this is really hard to pick among these projects. And I said, now you know how difficult it is for city council members to make decisions and pick and choose. Um, the needs are always greater than the revenue and budgets available to undertake these projects. So we also made a commitment at that time that we would uh, complete those projects within budget, on schedule, within five years. And we developed a financial plan so that every five years the city could undertake similar-sized programs. We didn't want to do it all at once. Plus, this was the first one in 07 that the voters voted on. That was four times bigger than anything the city had taken on before. So we wanted to make sure that we were successful and then build on that success. Was that about the same time when the change from two two-year terms in terms of two limits, uh, term limits was changed from four two-year terms? Did that make it easier? Or was there a reason you had five-year increments and in what the bond package would do? Those two were not related. Phil Hardberger did recommend, I think he felt that uh, we had reestablished some better confidence among the voters, and uh, he recommended and what the voters approved were four two-year terms. When I came to San Antonio in 05, it was two two-year terms, and the community was reluctant to give them any more time because there had been so many problems with elected officials. Uh, and they weren't getting paid much They at were all. not, no. They were paid $20 per meeting at the time, um, which I thought was a problem as well. I mean, how, how can you not work or work less uh, and support a family when you're getting paid $20 a meeting? But um, uh, so we had four two-year terms. That actually happened right before Phil left office. So that was in uh, 08 uh, that that was considered by, by the voters. But we did that bond program and then um, in 2012, five years later, recommended a $600 million program, which the voters approved because we did substantially complete all those projects. There were a few that were being finished up at the end, but we kept them within budget and, um, and actually saved money because then by then we were in the recession and contractors uh, we were hungry for work, and so we had some great bids, saved, came in under budget, um, nearly $50 million, and uh, were able to reprogram those funds into even more projects for the community. People might not realize there's different forms of city government, but council manager, especially years ago, before they got paid, was council decides, but the manager runs it, so you have more power as the manager. When the council was getting paid $20, did they do less? Did they expect more of the city manager to run the business? Uh, I didn't really see much of a change when they, be, you know, when they were paid. I mean, they were spending a lot of time at City Hall, even when they weren't being paid. Uh, 
the professional form of government, and I'm an advocate for professional management, the best managed cities in the country are professionally managed. The two largest are Phoenix and San Antonio, where I've spent the last 30 years uh, of my career. Dallas is the third largest. Uh, one of my assistants is now the city manager of Dallas, T.C. Brodnax, who I recruited to San Antonio from Florida back in my early part of my tenure here. Um, and, of course, Peter Zanoni, who was the budget director. I promoted twice uh, for the city and last year um, took the job in Corpus Christi as city manager there. Uh, professionally run cities uh, have people who are trained uh, to manage local government, have experience, uh, and it provides continuity. So in a city like San Antonio, where the elected officials turn over so often, um, you have that professional continuity. And of course, we take our direction from the mayor and city council. They set the policy direction for the city. But the city manager, and I think a lot of people don't even understand, what does the city manager do? We have a mayor, so what do you do? Um, I'm, I'm there as the chief executive officer to manage the operations and the daily workings of the city. I hire and fire all the staff. I have to uh, hold people accountable. We have 40 city departments. We're a highly diversified, very big municipal corporation with 13,000 employees and a nearly $3 billion annual budget. And we do it all in the media. <laughs> Uh, transparently, or you try? Transparently. We try to be very transparent. And, and this is different than, because we've always had this form here, at least for decades. Well, different than since other cities. 1951. Yes. But before that, and, uh, and the way other cities do it now, is how, if they don't have a strong city manager? Well, the council manager plan is really the most common form of uh, local government. But many of the large cities, Chicago, New York, Los Angeles, Houston, are strong mayor cities. And so uh, when the mayor changes, often the police chiefs or department heads change. Uh, and then those employees are also expected to work on those campaigns. Uh, it's, it's more of a patronage uh, system. The next uh, mayor you had, uh, Julian Castro, had lost to Phil Hardberger. Um, what was that? transition like? And he's obviously a different person than Phil. A very different person, but we had an excellent working relationship. Um, I think very highly of Mayor Castro. He uh, introduced the SA 2020 initiative that we discussed with the community, and we helped him as he um, asked our residents, what do we want the city to be? What are we aspiring to be? And then to develop performance metrics on how to measure to get there. He was extremely supportive of the bond effort and what we had done. And so we uh, went to the voters in 2012 with the second big bond pro program that was nearly $600 million. Um, he introduced the Cafe College concept on how to help kids who need assistance with financial aid, whose parents may not have college degrees or know how to do that. How do we help these kids uh, get to college? And then, of course, he... He appointed the Brain Power Task Force that was co-chaired by Charles Butt and retired General Joe Robles, who at the time was CEO of USAA, and uh, community business leaders and educators to study how we could improve education in the community. And out of that, they recommended early childhood pre development for essay. centers. Yes, pre-K for essay. 
And uh, when they made their recommendation, he asked me if I would develop a business plan on how to implement that program. Uh, we did, over that summer of, of 2012, presented that to the city council uh, in August. They set the election, and the voters approved the program. And now uh, we are going up for renewal this November 3rd. And you're working on that. And I am working on that campaign. You know, when we started that program, and Mayor Castro is a good example of, of a, he and his brother, uh, the congressman, Joaquin Castro, um, are very smart young people from the community who had the opportunity to go to school at Stanford and then to Harvard Law School and come back to the community to make improvements here. Um, there are lots of other young people like that here that may not have that opportunity. So how do we best improve their chances? And people ask me often, what's the biggest challenge in San Antonio? And to me, it's about education. If we can educate our workforce, our future workforce, in how, how to take on 21st century jobs, then, then we are doing the best that we can uh, for the community. But it was an experiment somewhat back in 2012 when we took this on, uh, but it's been highly successful. And we have an excellent CEO and director through Dr. Sarah Beret. Uh, we have a pre-K board of directors led by Elaine Mendoza and business people and educators on that that board that oversee the program in combination with the city since all the staff at Pre-K for SA are city employees. It's been a great partnership and the performance metrics indicate that it does make a difference. And to me it seemed as if that was a marked a change and that was kind of controversial. Why is a city getting involved in this? And San Antonio's had a history of the phrase againers. They're again this, Applewhite was voted down, uh, fluoride was voted down, what became the Alamo Dome was voted down, and so that's why the county uh, built that. Or, is that right? AT&T AT Center. Center, I'm sorry. But there were some of the, and even the Alamo Dome was controversial and, and got a lot of flack and blowback, but because we wanted football, that was sold. Was that a change in San Antonio? Because some people were surprised that that something non-basic city streets drainage passed. I did hear that as we talked about the program. I couldn't campaign for it then as a city employee. We can't ask people to vote a particular way. But I can explain the business behind what the initiative is and answer questions. And I would also often hear that. Why are you getting into the education business? And I said, you know, um, we own and operate dozens of libraries that are education centers in, in our neighborhoods throughout the community. We have education programs on recycling. When we automated garbage collection, we undertook a huge educational effort to explain how we could improve our performance as a community. So there are many things that um, the city is involved with educationally. This was new because we did... Um, build and operate four schools, four education centers, pre-K centers, one north, south, east, and west. We hired uh, master certified early childhood educators and teacher assistants, and uh, this is an academically rigorous, uh, age-appropriate program. And our children who have graduated from our program, and we only educate four-year-olds, 2,000 in our four schools annually, have gone on through uh, the public 
and, and private system, and our children are performing better in the testing that's going on statewide, on average, than other children in the state of Texas. And this also addressed another issue that I'm sure you researched when you got here, the inequality and poverty level of San Antonio. Education has been something business people have complained about a lot, that they can't keep people in San Antonio um, or get businesses to move here because there aren't enough qualified uh, people. How did you work on that problem? Yeah, so uh, as we worked on economic development projects, retaining business in San Antonio as well as attracting new business to the community, it was the first thing I would hear from prospective um, business people. That is, um, it wasn't about incentives. It was about what kind of workforce do you have? Do you have engineers? Do you have electricians? Uh, Do you have technology-trained workers in the community that can take on jobs with our our companies? And uh, so we knew that we had to develop a better pipeline and work closely with our universities and community colleges on better training our employees. And, And the best way to do that is to start young and make sure that kids have a great foundation so that they stay in school They graduate from high school and then either go on to an apprenticeship program or a two-year or four-year degree program because 21st century jobs require much more training. Um, Our dropout rates were so high, the poverty, poverty level was high, but we didn't want children to fall into the same mode of dropping out of school to get a minimum wage job and then being locked into that environment for the rest of their lives. You know, even when I came to San Antonio as a city organization, I found that there were 900 employees who were not even earning a federal living wage. 900. I moved them all up to the federal living wage. Um, I just did it. These are full-time employees, and they were opting out of the city's health care so that they could um, uh, save any contribution to health care and then get on public assistance through the state program. And uh, that's not a good situation. And we didn't want to be a last resort. People come to work for the city as a last resort, but rather an employer of choice because we pay competitive wages, there's opportunity for advancement, and it's exciting. You get to work on exciting, important services that we deliver to the public. And at the same time, uh, out of SA 2020 and what Mayor Castor wanted, there was a decade of downtown, as well as, is it about that time when you discovered the heart of what's in Greedy Bastards, that the uh, contracts with the police and fire unions were getting more and more expensive? It was uh, clearly as a result of the Great Recession. So as we actually collected less revenue year over year during the recession. Um, The council and the community didn't want us to reduce uh, public safety, police and fire, um, which meant that we had to cut in the other areas of the budget because we didn't raise taxes and we had to work with the money that we had. Um, I don't think people fully understand that police and fire represents two-thirds of the city's general fund budget. That means that all the other things, street maintenance and parks and recreation and the library system and public health. Lots of people are talking now during COVID, we needed to invest more in public health. Well, 
um, there was no one crying for public health back during the the recession on improve the that department. It was focused on public safety and streets. I probably heard more about streets than anything else uh, that we did. Uh, but um, crowding that out then brought to attention, and I, I got into the detail of those contracts, and without passing judgment on what happened back in 1988 when those contracts were put in place uh, while Harold Flamia was president of the union, uh, who later went to prison for uh, taking bribes uh, from the legal fund um, that's discussed in the book, but um, that we, we had to make some changes in the business model. The police union had a lot of power then in, in they 88, did. in the 80s, and, and so yeah. they got a lot in that 88 contract, and then they just kept adding to it. And adding the to council it. renewed it, and um, the one thing that's different in Texas uh, police and fire can work on city council elections, so they contribute, their political action committees contribute to council members. Um, I'm told by council members that uh, the unions would talk with them that if they didn't support what they wanted, what the unions wanted, they'd run a candidate against them. And so there was political intimidation. Uh, and it made it pretty difficult. So in '09, uh, when I tried initially to change uh, the business model of the health care, and not, not to take away benefits, but to restructure it so that it was financially sustainable because it was no longer affordable and clearly not sustainable. I had projected that as soon as 2024 or 2031 or 2040, it would bankrupt the city. It would only be, we'd only fund public safety, nothing else. And it didn't show up maybe as how much they were making in salary. It was the benefits, the health benefits that paid everything for the employee as well as for their spouse and family. And we, and we still pay 100% for the employee, but we are asking them to contribute. Um, we offer two plans. Uh, one has a premium. If you want the legacy plan, the old plan, you now have to contribute toward the cost of health care uh, for your dependents. Uh, but we have a consumer-driven health care plan with a health savings account uh, that's offered. And uh, a majority of the employees have moved to that system uh, because they save money and the city saves money at the same time. People might wonder, okay, back then it was, what, two-thirds that go to public safety? Across the country, how does that compare? Yeah, we were, on, now? we were definitely on the high side. We were much higher than in other places. And, you know, it, at first, when I came to San Antonio, they said, look at our base wages. But then as I studied the issue, I found that they had 17 special pays uh, that get added onto that. And every officer in the department has one or more of those. Not just overtime, but different no, kinds No, no. Um, special pay for uh, if you're a certified peace officer in the state of Texas. Well... You have to be by law to work for the city, but then there was a special pay. So um, it was it was quite clever what they had done over the years. Um, and then, of course, their benefits were excessive by any metric, whether compared locally in the economy or compared to other departments in the state. So that was true. Their base wages were low compared to other cities. But I said, no, let's take a look at this in terms of total compensation. That is, um, wages and benefits. And they were the highest and in the state. And how did that pit you against the union instead of 
say, okay, you take this to a council person or a mayor, and they take the lead on that? How well, did that develop? Yeah. So I was the first city manager to really expose this and take it on. Um, for since 1988. Um, <clears throat> the negotiations had taken place in a labor lawyer's conference room. And I knew that if we continued that, it'd be the same thing. You know, we'd have uh, that kind of conversation. People wouldn't believe it. And so I decided we needed to be data-driven in our discussion. It had to be transparent. And we had to be reasonable about how we approached it. So I brought the negotiations to City Hall. Um, we hired new labor attorneys uh, to work and represent the city. Previously, as an example, um, police department assistant and uh, deputy chiefs were on the negotiating team. Well, they're a member of the union, so we're, we're negotiating with people who are also members of the union. It didn't make sense to me. Um, and I had labor experience. I come from a labor family. My dad was a labor leader and a union member. I worked the first 15 years of my career in Michigan, one of the toughest labor states in the country. Um, <clears throat> I thought I had the experience to take this on, but it was bigger than the city manager's authority in the end because they went around me and tried to intimidate elected officials. And they viewed it having a public conversation as... Uh, bad-mouthing them to the public. And that's not what it was about. It was to say, here's what's happened. Let's call that the golden years. But we need to remodel this because it's no longer affordable and it's not sustainable over time. And over time, how did that battle, which you talk about in the book, escalate? Well, escalate is a good word for you to, to ask me about because uh, their chief negotiator has a book and in it, they describe that escalation is key. You pick out someone uh, and kind of keep them in the crosshairs. That happened to be me in this process. I'm not anti-police. During my tenure, I recommended and the city council approved adding nearly 700 new police and fire personnel. It's a core business of the city. It's important to every resident. Uh, and I'm not anti-police by any stretch. But they painted you that way. They and did. that you made more, and that was another issue that they kept mm -hmm. in the spotlight. How did right. you feel when that happened and how the council reacted? Or didn't? Well, it was disappointing. It was hurtful. Uh, the council saw how they were treating me, and uh, one of them said, well, you're paid to take this. Uh, I didn't quite agree with that. However, um, I... I knew that I had the council's support. I had the council's support throughout this process, um, all four mayors and council members. Uh, and I worked with 47 different elected officials during that time. That doesn't mean it was unanimous, uh, but um, a clear, a large majority knew that we had to change. But the Evergreen Clause, which we had on the news all the time and people seem to know about, was that the toughest part because they said they could wait you out? The 10 years after the contract expires, the, uh, the terms stay in effect? Yeah, that was very difficult. Um, and, uh, you know, they portrayed it as we were suing the rank and file. We weren't suing the rank and file. What we did was ask for a declaratory judgment which is filed in the form of a lawsuit, but it's asking the courts to say, is this constitutionally correct? 
Can they really tie up the city, tie the mayor and council's hands from making financial decisions for 10 years to keep in place a contract that has expired? And in fact, it was almost five years before the fire union even came to the table to negotiate. Um, and of course, they went to the voters and, and did get binding arbitration approved. Um, their members worked the polls. They were at the uh, highest voting precincts uh, because they work 24 hours. They're off 48 hours, so they had a lot of off time that they could be there uh, to advocate and say, hey, we haven't had a raise for four years. Do you support your firefighters? Vote yes on these items. And doesn't that city manager earn too much money? And That was another item and they that put was on another the, on item. The, uh, it didn't ballot. apply to me, but, you know, they... Uh, they were trying to paint me as the bad guy. As the greedy bastard. As the greedy bastard, when in fact um, they were trying to protect what they had. And I used the title because it reflects how tough the, the fight was, but also how far they would go to keep in place what they had, even if it meant harm to the city. And a big part of it is about the money, but it's also about something that's in the news now, which is uh, police accountability yes. and holding them accountable. And that's one thing you didn't get. didn't get that you'd like to have had. Yes, it was a priority when we began the process of negotiation with the police union in 2014. Uh, we wanted the chief to have more authority over disciplining the officers. Um, there are conditions in what's called Chapter 143, it's of the Texas Local Government Code, that give police officers arbitration rights if, if they're terminated. Uh, and uh, we wanted the chief to be able to present in those arbitrations the complete file um, of the officers, um, as well as make a number of changes. We had seven items that we really wanted changed. We spent so much time talking about health care, and it was such a difficult battle to even reach a mediated settlement with uh, the police in June of 2016 that the mayor and council and perhaps the community had grown weary of the fight and said, accept what we were able to get at this point try to get that in the next contract. Speaking of the next contract, that's coming up. They're starting negotiations this fall. Next next winter, or next this winter. winter. Yeah, um, January. How did you do, you think, on that contract? And since uh, since then, what do you think they'll get out of this next one? Obviously, you're not It's hard that, to tell. They still have an eight-year evergreen clause. So if they don't if they don't uh, like what's being requested or decide they don't want to negotiate, they can string it out for a long period of time, hopefully um, not too long. But I, I don't know what they'll do because I don't, I don't think, based on, on what the union has said publicly so far, that they feel any pressure to, to make change. What is it like watching that from outside now? Is it like... I don't have to deal with that anymore, <laughs> or man, I wish we would have done this, or a little of both, or. Oh, you can always second guess. Um, hindsight's twenty twenty, as as the saying goes. But um, we were able to achieve for the police and fire union contracts savings of more than one hundred and fifty million dollars just during this five year term of both contracts. Uh, that's significant for the city. And those savings in health care will go on uh, into the future. So um, I wish we were and had been able 
to get those disciplinary changes. But I'm, I'm hopeful that those changes will come in 2021. Since that and the big part of the battle and writing the book, well, people might wonder, okay, well, you're done. You made, you know, you, you made good money. You retired. Why wouldn't you just go off and like Phil Hardberger uh, sometimes go on a boat ride someplace and not worry about any of this. Well, we did travel. My husband and I made up for lost time last year and, and did quite a bit of traveling. I decided to write the book because as much media coverage as there was about this, I think the main issue as to why we took on this challenge was largely misunderstood. There was so much about the fight that people didn't realize we were doing this for the future of the city. I dedicate the book to the residents of the community and to our public safety personnel who keep us safe. Um, this was about being able to have a department that's uh, well-equipped, but it was for the taxpayers of the community who can't afford to pay more. And uh, so I thought it was important to make sure that, that the facts uh, were out there. And it's also, I think, a guidebook for other city managers in the country, elected officials and communities that are facing some of these very same challenges. And I'm often um, contacted by them to say, now, how did you go about this? I've already had a call from Houston saying, hey, can we talk with you about... <laughs> uh, going to be a consultant? Um, I'm doing a little bit of consulting, but um, not a lot. I'm doing a lot of nonprofit work here in the community. Boards and a lot of boards. Pre-K for SA now. Pre-K for SA campaign. Um, I'm also serving on the Texas 2036 board that's chaired by Tom Luce out of Dallas and um, former U.S. Uh, Secretary of Education is our CEO, Margaret Spellings. And Joe Strauss is involved too. Joe Strauss and Peter John Holt are uh, co-chairing our Early Matters Task Force that I, I serve on. We had a two-hour meeting yesterday about the future oh, that's the, okay. of right. early childhood education here in the community. Um, I just recently was asked to join the Texas Biomedical Research Institute board here in San Antonio that's doing outstanding uh, testing and analysis related to COVID-19, uh, which is timely and important uh, so much. I also joined a corporate board. Um, I've been recruited by uh, several companies about joining their corporate board. So I'm, I'm keeping very busy. I have an office downtown, uh, but I thought this was important to uh, set the record straight as to why we were doing this and also help other city managers. Nelson Wolf has written any number of books. Is this the first in a series or is this <laughs> it for a while? You, you majored in journalism. In I did. College, I majored State. in journalism and political science in college. I have a master's degree in public administration. Um, I don't see other books ahead, although I have already been asked about that. And how about writing about this? And even my staff at City Hall said, you have to do a, a second phase. There are so many more stories to really talk about. Really bastards. <laughs> well, no, to talk about the transformation. Um, I give a few examples in the book of what we did to turn around some city operations and departments. But you could pick any number of the city departments and how we went about improving performance and um, setting in place uh, good staff to be able to perform at their highest level. So, a textbook? You could write a textbook? Possibly, but that is not on, on my radar right now. Uh, and what else is? What would you like to do down the road here, aside from boards or, uh, you know, your kids are grown, 
you stayed here, which some people might have been surprised about. Why did you stay in San Antonio? Well, we've grown to love San Antonio. Uh, it's become home. Uh, this condominium where we live, uh, Mike and I realized uh, a couple of years ago, we've lived longer in this home than any other home we've had, and we've been married for more than 40 years. Uh, right on the Riverwalk. Right on the Riverwalk, and it's beautiful. Um, and we have, we've made many, many friends here. We're uh, deeply engaged in the community. Um, if and when our children decide to have some grandchildren, maybe we'll move. <laughs> I'm kind of anxious for that, but um, we'll see. Time, time will tell. Right now, we're here. Did you get any COVID hobbies? A lot of people have done. Did you do anything differently while... There was lockdown. You finished this before, right? You were waiting until February. Actually, the book was supposed to publish in May. Um, I finished the book right after the Fire Union Arbitration Award was public, uh, February 14th. I penned the epilogue shortly thereafter, and I sent the book off to proofreading in March. So that was um, right at the beginning, uh, right before COVID. I had to make the decision on whether or not to publish in May. Uh, by mid-April, and uh, that was kind of at the height of what was happening here at the be- that first wave in San Antonio, and I decided that I wouldn't be able to have any public conversations or media interviews or uh, book signings, and that I'd wait till September, hoping that we'd be through this. Uh, after the George Floyd killing and uh, in, in Memorial Weekend, and then seeing in early June that this wasn't going to subside, in fact, it was on the rise again, I decided now was the time to go ahead and publish the book. More timely than ever. More timely than ever. In fact, the book is even more relevant than when I started writing it a year ago. Um, It really is about changing old business models uh, to better reflect the current environment and times. And, And so this is about just because it was put in place 25 or 30 years ago doesn't mean that's how we'll always do it. And I I think we're realizing, too, that while public safety personnel are very important to a community, um, there are many essential workers, our health care workers, our delivery people, the clerks at the grocery store, uh, teachers. And and so there are there are many essential workers. You uh, it's more timely than ever, but you're doing very well with the book. What did you have in mind in terms of how many you might sell and who it's aimed for and how did you and your publisher uh, respond when you sold out at the Barnes & Noble I went to and they were like, <laughs> yeah, they got to print more. Yeah, they, um, it's hard to know. I really had no idea how many books we'd sell and net proceeds from my book are being donated to charities Uh, Here, So uh, next week, for example, I'll be speaking um, with the United Way group, the Women United, and I'll be making a donation to Women United as part of of that uh, Zoom. Uh, Not Zoom, we're doing that, uh, but it will be a virtual event. Uh, I'm doing another one for the San Antonio Youth Literacy on September 10th. I'll make a donation to uh, the youth literacy organization as a result of their their buying uh, their buying books. I used to be a reading buddy in that program for three years at Bonham Elementary downtown, and I encouraged my staff to also be reading buddies, and many of them did. So, um, 
it's it's gone well. I made the Amazon bestseller list. Yeah, how did that in terms of week. which what bestseller list and how did it Well, on four lists actually. Really? Yeah, the public administration list, if I can remember all of these. Um, uh, let's see, a, a business and labor list. Um, there were four categories that my publisher sent to me and said, you're number one on all four lists. So, And what's it like doing media interviews like this instead of news conferences where you're a target? Yeah, this is much better. Yeah. <laughs> you asked me about do I, I miss being there. When COVID first started, um, I felt I had this urge, like, I need to be there. I need to help. Um, put me in charge of something and then realize my staff are extremely capable. In fact, one of my proudest accomplishments is that uh, the deputy and assistant managers and department heads are just first rate. Um, They're best in class. And uh, when I was recruited, they didn't consider people inside the city organization for the city manager position. Um, So I knew I had my work cut out for me because I would not have done my job if I didn't leave behind a variety of people who could be selected to become city manager. And all six of my deputy and assistants applied, were interviewed, and they selected one of of them. But did you look and say, you know, I would have done this instead of that, and I wish they hadn't have done this? Not much. I mean, I have had uh, conversations with Eric Walsh and Maria Gomez and Ben Gorzell, a host of of staff there. If they call and ask me for my opinion, I, I, will, I will share that with them. Uh, we've had a few of those conversations, but for the most part, I need to, you know, I need to let go and let them do their thing. It brings up one last issue that I'd like to ask you about, which is state power versus city power. The governor had initially said, okay, leaders of big cities, you decide what you need to do. And then after some criticism, said, no, 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 it all has to stay in line with the state power. Was that frustrating for you as a city manager because the straight state power and the way the governor uh, interprets it is he doesn't like things like tree ordinances. Any ordinance that might conflict with the state is, uh, is at risk. Yeah, it is frustrating to watch that. Um, the Texas 2036 effort has as one of its six pillars government performance and it's about improving the working relationship between cities and the state. Um, I think there is a tremendous opportunity for more improvement. Uh, We're a home rule city and we should be allowed to make the kinds of decisions that we want for our community and our elected leadership as opposed to having that uh, directed uh, from the state. So Um, I I think we'll hear about more of that in the future. Well, thank you very much for talking with us. Um, As a oldest of seven kids, what do your siblings say about (laughs) the author, Cheryl Scully? Um, I think think they're proud of me. Um, I I think uh, several of them have already read the book and said, oh my gosh, I had no idea. I knew you had a very responsible position and it was hard work but I had no idea that this is what you were and it raises your profile again with the book if you get more offers to do other things will you consider that see I um, I'm no more city manager positions I mean I worked in the public sector in city management for 45 years I'm a life member of the International City Management Association if I can help other aspiring city managers or current city managers and communities be effective 
in transforming their local government. I'm, I'm happy to do that. Uh, but I'm enjoying having a little more flexibility in my own time, even as busy as I am. Well, thank you very much, Cheryl Scully. Greedy bastards. If it's sold out at uh, the bookstore where you go to, where do you think people can get it? You can it? order the book on Amazon. And I know because I delivered uh, more books to the Twig at the Pearl on Friday uh, that uh, you can also go to the Twig and buy a book there. But it is available in hardcover, paperback, and electronically on Amazon. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thanks for the invitation to do this. Give her a hand. Thanks. Thanks.